Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 218 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2022. It's almost a month since our last episode. Shh! <laughs> Don't give away the secret. I wasn't going to point that out. Well, it's not fully a month, Steve. It's it's one day shy of a month. It's 30 days. It, well, it's round down. <laughs> I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lodick. And... Um, I have, I have, I don't know if you feel this way. I have long felt. I think our colleagues are divided. When you ask them what is the worst month of the year to be a law professor, mm. I think a lot of our colleagues would say May, right, because of their love for grading. I am an April person, right? I am very much in the April is the worst camp. Is that because the steamroller effect of all the stuff in the course you haven't covered yet and running out of class days so to cover I, it? I was actually, I, I actually was going to hit my mark until the unexpected 25-minute fire drill we had in the middle of class today. <laughs> um, thank you. But I, I was actually for the, so I usually have the last class of the semester be the first part of our review session. And I was on track for that until our fire drill today. That's a rare thing. Um, uh, but no, it's not that. It's, it's, it's like, so because of exam, exams create hydraulic pressure on committees to finish all of their work before yeah. exams, right? Um, exams create sort of stress pressure backwards for students so that office hours get busier in April. And we have deadlines, right? And so, you know, I just feel like, you know, yes, grading is hard and a pain in the butt, right? But at least... Everything else in our schedules is usually cleared for grading. So is April worse than November? Yes, because November we have a break. Get the break. Although that can be its own disruption to teaching. It's uh, weird it, yeah. you know, to come back from the Agreed. the Thanksgiving break. And next but, year, I know our new schedule. We get a full regular fall break. Yay. I am I am on the faculty council that voted to oh, approve yeah, this right, academic right. calendar. So, so I am bummed that our, our our winter break though is no longer uh, friends. In, at UT, we used to come back for our first day of class after MLK Day. It's like late January. Now it's like January 9th. Whatever. I mean, I, at American, we came back like January 2nd. So this is all good. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I like the long January break. But all I will say, though, is I'll take that for having, because I would always cancel class the Tuesday and Wednesday of Thanksgiving anyway. So now it's just formalized. So I think um, part of the rationale here was to open up more space in May. Yes. So in, in undergrad units, take advantage of that by having May masters and so forth. Should we have something like that? This. You want to roll right out of your tough April and into a Maymester? Not especially, no. <laughs> but thanks. Um, anyway, but so I think I think I, I mentioned that by way of saying yes, it's been a month. Yes, we are terrible at our jobs. Um, not that I think of the podcast as like our, our job. This is our main job. Everything else is the side <laughs> secondary. <gig. laughs> Man, we have our priorities. Our way seventeen messed other up. side gigs. But to the, like the forty-seven of you who tweeted at us, who subtweeted us, who emailed us suggesting that they were going to start a super PAC to raise that funds. That was awesome. So that we can, I mean, I have no objection to a super PAC that raises funds. Well, what I loved about that was it was going to be a fundraiser to, to bring back the Trump administration yes. on the theory that that's what brought us right. to the microphones reliably. Yes, uh, yes, because because we ha because the reason why we haven't been recording is because there's been nothing, nothing going on. Nothing happening in the world. I, um, I will just say, I mean, you know, I, you know, not recording has deprived me of the pleasure of crowing about the, the team with the best record in all of Major League Baseball. I was going to say, I think the, the main thing distracting us uh, perhaps has been watching baseball. So this is, I mean, Karen's reaction, right? Like, you know, every night I'm like, ooh, the Mets game is on. She's like, why are we watching this? Like, because they're 
good. We have to melt. You have to make hay while the sun is shining. I mean, you know, maybe they'll fall apart. This at, happened last year, didn't it? weren't we pretty excited for a while? There? Last year, or two years ago, yeah. um, right? But yes, there. The, yeah. but, but, but this but time, just, doing it without Degrom. Not only doing it without Degrom, but like doing it like they're winning games in ways that actually make you think they're a good team, as opposed to <laughs> fluky, right? I mean, like you know, Monday night when with two outs in the top of the ninth, they score five runs yeah. to beat the Cardinals five to two. I mean, Bobby, they've won. You know, all for the first time in the franchise history, they've won their first six series of the season. That's amazing, including against the Giants, who have the second best record, right? And or tied for the second best record in the National League. Um, and the Cardinals, who are a good team. There are listeners saying, like, wait, what's the title of this podcast? It's, it's, the, the, it's the National it is League the first place, uh, podcast. It is, it is the first place New York Mets podcast. <laughs> and you know what? If you haven't heard us for, you know, I mean, it's not just that we haven't recorded about it. I feel like we haven't seen yeah, each other. Yeah, we haven't hung out. We are in the office here. This is great to be back in the studio. Yes, we, we are in we are in uh, National Security Law Podcast Studios. <laughs> Welcome to the headquarters. So uh, let's let's just know a couple. We're going to talk about a couple of substantive things. We're going to touch base with the Ukraine-Russia war, of course. Um, we're going to specifically talk about this question that keeps circulating around about neutrality versus co-belligerency and and what is where does the United States interactions fit within that That sounds rubric. substantive. Yeah, that's we won't go too substantive, but we'll go a little bit substantive. Um, we'll check in with the Supreme Court. Um, we've got US Navy SEALs 1 through 26 uh, also known as Austin versus U.S. Navy SEALs, and we have some shadow docket action. There. We have, we have, we have. The, there, there has been some out. Uh, the, 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 the call it what you want docket um, has been busy. Right. So that's a case we we dealt with or checked in on at the district court level. So now we're coming back to it, and uh, we've got some Guantanamo uh, developments. We have another detainee cleared for release, and so we'll, we'll sort of touch base with Gitmo. And maybe we'll do a National Security Division roundup. There's, there's been all kinds of stuff. I mean, National Security Division has been busy. It's been a month. Yeah, ever since Matt Olson was here. Yeah, indeed. Um, That's crazy. That was a month ago. I know. I know. Yeah, I feel I like April flew. Like Sunday really is did. May. Oh, it's brutal. Uh, yeah, we've been busy. Okay, so yeah, I just texted Karen. Karen's uh, traveling for business, which mm-hmm. also is contributing to my yes. uh, uh, um, lack of time for anything. So she said, how's your day? I said, insane. We had a 20-minute fire alarm in the middle of Fed courts. She wrote back, SCOTUS, question mark, question mark? Oh, fire. Like, no, <laughs> no an, an actual, actual fire, fire alarm. alarm. <laughs> <laughs> that was an actual fire alarm, not the SCOTUS. Awesome. I, I have to tweet this. This is pretty good. That is pretty good. And then, uh, but I think we will spend some time. Did you watch the first episode, at least, of Picard Season 2? No. Okay. No. No. Have you watched any Moon Knight? No. All right. We'll have to do a trade. Have you watched Winning Time, the Lakers series? I saw actually a, a clip from I watched a little bit of it the other day, and I was loving I love the fact that it's filmed as if they actually filmed it back in the 70s. Nice, nice cinematography. Uh, um, all right, we will. We will John C. Riley seems to be pure genius. Oh my gosh, John C. Riley is Jerry Buss. Uh, we, we we will we will we will we'll discuss at least some it. of this at the end of the episode, time permitting. But Bobby, you want to start with the the that that war that's still going on? Yeah. Okay. So the Ukraine Russia war continues. Uh, there are obviously endless legal aspects to this in, associated with the war crimes that seem to keep occurring. Um, but I wasn't going to focus on that. I was going to raise the the co-belligerency and neutrality question. We've, I think we talked about this before uh, in the last, maybe, well, I don't know how long ago our last episodes were before last month's, but let's just check in on this because there has been sort of a constant theme of, I, I would describe it as anxiety perhaps about whether our provision of arms and the provision of arms to the Ukrainians uh, by other allies, as well as uh, the recent stories emphasizing 
the, uh, let's say, the highly actionable nature of some of the intelligence that we are providing. In fact, there was a headline, I think it was a day or two ago in the New York Times, specifically emphasizing that some of the intelligence was used and enabled, enabled the Ukrainians to shoot down a transport plane packed with Russian soldiers. And so these sorts of activities are leading people to say, wait a minute, are, we're not, the United States is not a party to the conflict or is, is at least not purporting to be, but doesn't this violate our duty as neutrals? And, and therefore, some of the looser talk has it, haven't we become co-belligerents? And oh my God, when, so we're at war with Russia. And I don't think that's right, and I want to unpack why that's not right. So first of all, a word about the idea of there being a law of neutrality. Go back before the UN Charter era. In other words, go back in, into the World War II and beyond era in which these, these matters of how states relate to one another in the context of war are questions of customary international law and the USAD bellum. Um, there certainly is, was, and, and still is, a law of neutrality. And the basic idea was that when war breaks out, the, the, the world is divided and the community of nations is divided into those that are the belligerents, the parties to the conflict, and others are neutrals. And neutrals have various rights and obligations. And the system was designed to enable uh, countries in commerce and in exchange of people and goods, et cetera, to, to continue as normally as possible in that circumstance. The UN Charter uh, world doesn't directly talk about neutrality. The idea of the law of neutrality isn't something that's dealt with as such in the UN Charter system. But what the UN Charter system certainly does do is outlaw the use of force except under certain specific conditions and create all the, the familiar rules from Article 2.4 and Article 51, etc. Now, against this backdrop, is it really as simple as when a war breaks out, uh, you're either a neutral or you're in the war? Right. The U.S. position actually in the, in the modern era has never been that it's that simple. Uh, during World War II, we had the position that's come to be known as qualified neutrality. That is to say that there is- Not to be confused with qualified immunity. It, it, definitely not to be confused with qualified immunity. The idea of qualified neutrality is that um, in a circumstance in which there is clearly an aggressor that is illegally initiating the use of force against another a victim state in the community of nations, um, everyone else isn't forced into a position of having to be strictly neutral or else being a party to the war itself. You can, ha you can have qualified, and you should have. As a moral matter, you should have qualified neutrality, meaning you can provide even war material to one of the sides if you're doing it on behalf of the victim state. Now, obviously, this gets into, as all discussions of victim state versus aggression do, you get into difficult questions of line drawing. Um, but I would submit that Russia's uh, active aggression in invading Ukraine actually is not a difficult case, and there is no difficult line drawing to be done here. And that just as uh, through Lend-Lease and other measures in the World War II era before the United States entered the war, we were providing war material to the Allies and to the Brits in particular, but to the others as well, um, so too here. And so we're acting very consistent with our longstanding U.S. position on what the rules are. We're acting consistent with qualified neutrality. But what if that's wrong? What if you disagree? Does it follow that our provision of actionable intelligence and war material uh, makes us a full-fledged combatant and puts us in a state of armed conflict with the Russians? Does it authorize the Russians to use force against us? And the answer to all that is no. It's, it's, you have, at worst, 
internationally wrongful acts that warrant countermeasures. But, but none of this is a basis for the use of force against the United States. None of it constitutes an armed attack as such. Um, and so the, the, the worst case scenario from this perspective, if you play out the logic, is it's a question of, you know, have we opened the door for the Russians to engage in necessary and proportionate countermeasures short of the use of force? And again, we're not even actually at that stage because the rules of qualified right. neutrality, that's the position we take. So I, I think the the discourse about whether it is wise to take the steps we have taken so far, whether it would be problematic to take further steps to go even more aggressively into the supporting mode, those are questions of policy and strategy, politics and diplomacy. Um, I, I don't think it's right to think that we've crossed some sort of loop, uh, legal line. Steve, does that sound right to you? Yes, and and I, and you know the the folks who are portraying it as a bright line, I think, are missing all of that rich, nuanced, complex 20th century history. That whether you agree with it or not, I think clearly blurs the the, the, the distinctions. That's right. That's right. And in any any discourse that is basically suggesting illegality or wrongfulness on the part of those who are trying to aid the Ukrainians, um, that's a pretty unhelpful discourse. Right. If it's not, it, it's a perfectly appropriate one if, in fact, there are really serious objections. Um, but in a context in which what we need to be focused on are the war crimes that are unfolding from a Yusin Bello perspective and not losing sight of the initial act of aggression, uh, which, by the way, actually dates back to 2014, but right. never mind that. Um, it, that's not helpful either. Okay. Um, anything else that you want to say, Steve, about the context of, of Russia, Ukraine? Nope. Okay. Uh, let's D- go. Let's- dynamite drop in Monty. That broadcast school has really paid <laughs> off. Hey, let's go. Let's go to the highest court in the land. Uh, what's been happening at the Supreme Court? That well, there has been the some pickup of- basketball on the highest court in the land. Uh, do you ever get any? You, you follow the Supreme Court? Do you get rumors of who's good at basketball there? Because they do play, right? Um, the ju- none of the. I don't think any of the current ju- maybe Justice Kavanaugh. I was going to say might, I, I, bet, I bet. I bet Justice then. Kavanaugh can shoot some hoops. Yeah, um, but I'm not sure that that there's a big. Uh, uh, team, uh, you know, the, the legend, of course, was Justice White, right? The Heisman Trophy winning NFL leading rusher, Justice White. Yeah, but did he have, did he have game in basketball? So apparent, the, the, I think it's the brethren that sort of made this story well known. And, and I, I've never heard satisfying uh, disproof of it, right? That, that uh, Justice White's approach to playing pickup basketball um, was very much that, you know, he got to take four steps I was going to um, say, yeah. Right. Every time someone blew on him, he was fouled. You know, he didn't ever foul anybody. Um, you know, there, there's an HBO no made fun this to mo- play with. HBO made this movie a couple years ago called Muhammad Ali's Greatest Fight. It was like this um, made-for-TV or made-for-HBO movie about um, Clay versus U.S., about oh, Muhammad yeah, sure, Ali's yeah, dra- yeah. draft-resistant yeah. case. And um, the movie, there are things about the movie I like, right? But it tries so hard to, like, caricature the justices so that like within an hour and 45 minutes yeah all nine of the justices like stories across 20 years of service are smushed into like a one month time frame um so you know black talking about how you got to go for the jugular um and white <laughs> beating people up in the basketball court oh they got that in there oh yeah i love that That's um, awesome. but like i mean it, and they got most of that from the brethren and yeah i, I don't know i, I it makes like it, I think it, it, it makes the court accessible. It was like, wow, all that happened in like four days? No. <laughs> uh, students who are not familiar with The Brethren, it's one of the, the classics of Supreme Court inside baseball 
reporting as Woodward, right? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott Armstrong didn't mean to leave yeah. you out of that. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure he listens to this podcast. <laughs> indeed, indeed, I'm sure he does. All right, so we've got uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin versus yes. U.S. Navy SEALs 1 through 26. So we, we, believe it or not, we talked about this on our, pre, on our not our Matt Olson episode, but episode 216. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, so we had. Was so, that after the district court decision yes, dropped? Yes. Um, I, don't, I don't remember if the Fifth Circuit, I don't think the Fifth Circuit had ruled yet. So. But, yeah, they. That's right. That's right. So, the, so um, the the Navy, like every other military service, has imposed a vaccine uh, requirement, a COVID vaccine requirement for all service members. Um, as I pointed out, somewhat ironically, everyone except retirees. Um, make of that what you will. <laughs> DC Circuit that's still sitting on Larrabee. Um, although it made for a good twenty eight J letter. Um, but the. Um, so you have these 28J, the tool by which litigants can issue notice of supplemental authority to the court once the briefing's in. Right? Federal Rule of Appellate Procedure 28J. Yeah. Well done. Uh, not to be confused with the Enterprise J, which is, you know, <laughs> one of the future enterprises very, in. very, different. Yes. Okay. Anyway, um, that was a deep cut. That was a nice. deep Star Trek cut, yeah, by nice. the way. Nice. I, like I think you... the Enterprise J only shows up in like a random yep. episode of Enterprise. That was no stretch at all to bring that one in on a 28J letter. You know what? This <laughs> 28J, Enterprise J, they have the same number of syllables. Somehow that's a show title right there. Uh, indeed. I'm going to write that down. All right. All right. <laughs> 28J, Enterprise J, what's the difference? Um <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, for those who don't remember episode 216 like it was yesterday, because it was it's not yesterday. last year. <laughs> um, so you have these, 20, um, these 26 Navy SEALs who objected to the vaccine mandate on what they claim are religious grounds. Um, and their, their principal objection is that um, they have religious objections to some of the tissue, the abortive fetal tissue that was used in the development of the mRNA vaccine. Um, right. You know. Uh, without getting into the merits of that, right, that it poses a conflict between RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, and the deference courts have historically shown to the military, even in the space of religious exercise. By the way, do they similarly object to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, or is it just like people just don't even want to talk about J&J anymore? I, I think there are some flaws in their arguments. I mean, there are over-the-counter medicines that were developed through the use of you know fetal yeah. tissue that I think are not necessarily things that they object to taking. Um, but what was, I think, so especially aggressive about this injunction and why it got so much attention is because whatever folks think about religious objections to vaccine mandates, and, and, you know, that is a whole separate can of worms. If there's any context in which the government might have the strongest argument, right, it's not just for the deployment of active duty troops, but SEALs, like, you know, the tip of the sword, right, the, the folks who are like the most frontline needed immediate deployment, you know, troops. And the, what the government said is that if they're not going to get vaccinated, we can't deploy them because it's a risk to their unit, right? So, so you had this tension that Bobby, I think, is a fairly described as an ex attention in the case law, where on the one hand, you've got Goldman versus Weinberger, this 1986 Supreme Court decision that says ordinary free exercise principles don't apply to the military. No, wasn't, that, wasn't that about wearing a yarmulke? That was about wearing a yarmulke, yeah. right? Um, there's a, 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 a subsequent case that only went to CAF um, about other forms of sort of religious observance, right, in the military. Um, and the Supreme Court says, you know, the military is allowed to do stuff that we wouldn't let the government Absolutely. otherwise do. And this is in the context of free expression. Right. Uh, same amendment. 
Right. So Never mind that, right? Um, um, wearing a yarmulke and not wearing a yarmulke doesn't affect your combat deployability. Right. Right. I mean, no, the, the, it's the, the it's the special domain of right. military discipline yes. and management of the personnel. Right. There's a military deference doctrine. Right. And, and it's it, it's probably I would argue that this is historically I would have said like yeah. probably the most robust yeah. of the of the many dimensions of national security deference to the executive branch when it comes to the commander in chief and in the De- Department of Defense more generally managing personnel. I think that's right. And, and I would say a special, and if we're going to sort of rank sort all of this, right, managing frontline deployable personnel would be at the very top of the, right? Like, I mean, it's one thing to say like, okay, give them a post in the rear, right? Give them a desk job, right? But when you're talking about like SEALs, anyway. No, which is not to say, I, I rushed to add, which is not to say that Congress has no ability to impact. No, no, no. In fact, it clearly has Article One authority but to, that, so to, that's the to question do intervene. So, in so the theory. question is how, if at all, does RIFRA upset Right, the historical right. deference that the Supreme Court recognized in Goldman versus Weinberger, Bobby, that's an open question. Um, right, yeah. I think there are. It's, v- it's actually a very interesting question, and indeed, it's a question that one of my students is writing a note about. Oh, very speak. nice. So, good job, Sophia Shams. Um, um, anyway, so the um, the short version of all of this is that the district court, without even talking about Goldman versus Weinberger, said this is clearly a violation of RIFRA. Um, and enjoined the Navy from not deploying these guys. I mean, that was like it wasn't just that, it wasn't just enjoining the Navy from forcing these guys to get mandated uh, from vaccinated. It was it was about enjoining the Navy from refusing to deploy these guys. Right, and and so you know, there's two dimensions of of not oddity. Well, maybe oddity, but just seriousness about that issue. So so one is the question you highlighted that where, hey, where's the deference doctrine? Where's the discussion of these seemingly relevant precedents? But also there's the question of okay, but RIFRA doesn't mean uh, it's not a trump card that the government can't defeat. It it requires right a balancing. Yeah, it, requ- it requires a consideration of the classic elements. You know, is what is the degree of the government's interest? How narrowly tailored are we here? Now, in it, it should be said that the uh, the petitioners, or I guess they're the respondents in this case, but the, the seals, the, the plaintiffs. The yeah. So they're they're endeavoring to create and arguably have created a, a very a very interesting factual record that's raising serious questions about yes. the exemption process the Navy actually has and whether it's a sham, yeah. whether it is a de facto matter, even if not intentional, or perhaps even intentionally. Uh, is it actually? Is it like trying to claim on insurance? Is like you're just going to give much of no letter? Yeah, I'll, I'll just no say that what. that that you know when it comes to due process, right? I mean, if this is more of a due process argument as opposed to a free exercise right argument, I mean, the Supreme Court has long said that we apply much less rigorous due process right, right. to and internal military procedures than to ordinary government. It gets bound up in the question of is is the is the status quo of what the Navy's doing uh, narrowly tailored right. in light of to serve the government's interest, or is there is there a way that the government's interest could be better reconciled here? But, but, but can I back up yeah. a second? So so we have dived all the way into what's interesting about the merits of this case, yeah, right? Which is relevant to which, what we're now going to say. Well, but, but yes and no, right? I mean, so the district court issues an injunction ignoring almost all of this. Right, like not acknowledging that this is a hard question on the merits, like just saying it's so. This is so obviously a violation of RIFRA, and on the and, and I, I I really thought the district court's irreparable harm analysis was the worst part. Like, how are the seals irreparably harmed by not being forward deployed when they won't be vaccinated? Right, like they're not being separated from the navy. Right, they're not right. being administratively disciplined. They're not being like demoted. They were claiming. Were they claiming that they were going to suffer career repercussions? Yes. For- but okay. like I mean, that's you know. But I think that's that's probably the best. 
but angle it, for what the court was doing. Okay, but like, I mean, there are things, you know, there are protections for that, right, as well. So anyway, I, you know, with it seems to me that this is a great example of how you could have a case that raises a nasty, important question of law that's not appropriate for injunctive relief, right? Because the, the legal question is not obvious. The irreparable harm seems to be much more on the government side than on the plaintiff side, whatever. District Court enjoins it. Fifth Circuit refused, uh, rege- the government asked for a partial stay. Right. Fifth Circuit uh, says no. Fifth Circuit says no, which I think is a really, like, I mean, which, I mean, right, the government was not seeking a stay of the entire injunction, just that part of the injunction that required the Navy to deploy these guys. Or, or required to, like, they didn't actually have an affirmative obligation to find a reason to do it, but it, it took away the ability, if to, the to, unit right. was going to be deployed, to, these guys to, to couldn't be left them. out. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. That, you had to include them whatever you did. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly, exactly. Right. Um, which is one of the more aggressive injunctions of the military that we've ever seen All in right. American that, history. It, that's kind of cutting close to the bone on... on yes. Personnel control. All right, so it goes to the Supreme Court on the shadow docket. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, um, where there shall never be discussion of the merits. <laughs> uh, apparently not, except when there is. Um, so um, the court, what, on whatever that was, the I had this, I actually had this ready. March 25th. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just <whoops>. yesterday. <laughs> um, actually, right, like right, when we recorded with Matt. Um, right, um, the, the court, uh, by what appears to be, although we can't know for sure, yeah. a six to three vote with three public dissents. Right, with Thomas Alito right. and Gorsuch. Thomas didn't write his reasons, but, but he just did said, note his. I would have rejected the stay. Right. Gorsuch, Alito writes and joined Gorsuch, by Gorsuch. Joined, right. So, so we know that there are at least three dissents. It's possible there is a stealth fourth dissent. We know that there are stealth dissents sometimes. Yeah, they just, yeah, they. Yeah. We don't know, but like whatever. So the court is there's no there's no rationale by the majority, right? The only justice in the majority who writes is Justice Kavanaugh. Um, and Kavanaugh, who styles it as a concurrence. Who styles it, well, so yeah, I think we right. can say Justice Kavanaugh was in the majority. Yeah. Um, right. He's one. Um, I have a suspicion about at least you know four other votes in the majority. Right. So we so so Judge Barrett, Justice Barrett. Yeah, I don't know. I, we don't really know whether I don't she know was, where she. I don't know. And, yeah. and and it doesn't matter. I mean, I just but it's it's one of my sort of mini frustrations with the shadow docket. Right. Is like. There's all this rigor to like, okay, wait, where is everybody on this issue? So anyway, so but so what I want to talk about though, so I want to talk about two things. First, I wanted to say um, this to me is a great example, right, of a shadow docket order where I agree with the bottom line and hate what the court did, Um, right? So so I get a lot of pushback, right, in my in my shadow docket. Um, uh, what's, in, in wearing out the rhetoric of the shadow docket, right? I get a lot of pushback from folks who just think that I, you know, I, I just, I'm finding bad faith ways to challenge results I don't like, right? And so here's one where you're like, no, no, I like the result and I still don't like the process. Right, because it seems to me that here's a perfect opportunity for the court, right, to write just a couple of paragraphs recognizing what the legal question is, right? And saying like, you know, we think the question of whether RIFRA, inter- of how RIFRA intersects with Goldman versus Weinberger is a difficult one, right? We actually think the plaintiffs might or might not, I'd like to know, have a reasonable chance of succeeding on the merits, but the other factors weigh conclusively in favor of uh, uh, a stay at this point. Right, but we don't get that. Right, because wouldn't, I mean, let me just, here's a case, I, I want to sort of lay this out. Here's a case where it makes a huge difference to me, and I think to lower courts. If the court is saying we're granting the stay because we don't think the plaintiffs have a reasonable likelihood on the merits, or we're granting the stay because even though they do, right, the balance the of equities, hardships in the interim, right, right then those are two totally different rulings. And the uh, so the Alito dissent, I think, does a good job of laying out a strong case for why the uh, the seals might 
perceive and have burdens to bear. Yes. Um, what we don't have is anything from the majority that talks about the burden on the government and going the and, other and, way. And, and, so, and so this, to me, is a great example of what's wrong with the shadow docket, right? Which is there are two different reasons why the majority could have ended up where it did, right? One is because they just don't buy that there's a claim on the merits, or one is because they just think that the equities are so conclusively on the government side that it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, what listeners might say, like, well, you said Justice Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh concurred in granting the stay. What did he say in his opinion? And it, in his, his opinion is about the merits. Yep. Uh, he talks about, you know, Department of Navy v. Egan, which is like one of the classic sites for these deference principles we're talking about. There's even a little bit of uh, Justice Jackson. There's a little Jackson. seizures, which yep. is, you know, that's uh, that's great. And and it's all, right. it's all the, fine. It's, the it's the a, court should indulge the widest latitude, he writes, right, yes. to sustain the president's function to command the instruments of national force, at least when turned against the outside world for the security of our society. That's the Jackson quote. Right. And then he says, of course, you know, yes, there is RIFRA. But the, but the point is, RIFRA doesn't mean the government loses. It means the government's held to an extremely high standard. And he says, this is, you know, one of the highest possible government interest, combat capability. And he feels that there's not an obvious less restrictive alternative. That's the point that Alito and Gorsuch kind of challenge most directly on saying, no, are you kidding? This this process is a sham and there's a, there's a much better way, a more, there's a way you could have this exemption yep. play out more effectively. So they're all the, Fighting about the, merits. the materials we've got, it's all about the merits. And except for the dissent, there's no dis- there's some discussion of the burden on the seals. Yes. There's no discussion of what the uh, the burden of uh, on the government would be, and so it doesn't it doesn't feel like a preliminary injunction type discussion or a stay type discussion. It feels like a merits assessment. Right. And and indeed, one week later, Justice Kagan in a different shadow docket case is going to make exactly that charge um, in dissenting that the majority was ignoring the traditional equitable factors in a Clean Water Act case. And so, so I just, I just like, I think it's like again, I think it's the right result because I think RIFRA has to be understood as consistent with Goldman versus Weinberg or not as overruling it. Right. There's no, there's nothing in RIFRA to suggest that they add any. I don't think there's anything in the record right. of the legislative history or the text that would suggest attention to the military dimensions That's right. of That's this. Right. And so, and so, the, and so, I would think that you'd want a, 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 a more specific showing from Congress right before. So this is kind of a constitutional avoidance. I would think yeah. so, and I think Kavanaugh's getting at that right when he sort of oh for sure leans a little bit into the commander. Now, what's interesting is, of course, at least. It, you know, given that I suspect all three of the liberals are in the majority here, right? I suspect they would not agree with the sort of the commander in chief piece right. of that analysis, right? But this, to me, is sort of both the right result and emblematic of exactly why the shadow docket is a problem. So let's come back just real quick to the concern. The thing that's really your focal point is yes. there should be a fulsome discussion of all the elements, even a halfsome discussion, or even even a quartersome. Uh, that reminds me of a Tyrion Lannister. If Indeed, they cut me in half. Yep. That'd be the, the quarter man. <laughs> and just didn't have the same ring to it. That's that. That's a good line. Um, but the, no, but this. Is, so contrast this, Bobby, with like the CDC eviction moratorium case, right, where the court wrote eight pages, right, where the court says we are being asked to vacate a stay. Yeah. Right. Here are the elements. Here are the yes. elements. Here's yeah. how we apply them. Like that is by the book. Even if I don't. Even if I would have applied the elements. To differently yeah all right well um, anyway yeah so there so take that shadow docket <laughs> critics or critics uh, critic critics metacritics metacritics i don't know uh, deniers uh, anyway is uh, it, uh, is there shadow docket deniers yeah. I mean, it is I mean, like i was on a, listen i was on a panel yesterday and that was on a really panel i was in a conversation at the national Association of attorney general annual attorneys general annual mm. symposium and it was um, me and Allison Ho, you know, who's this fantastic superstar partner at Gibson Dunn mm-hmm. in Dallas, um, 
And, you know, Allison was sort of, you know, going in on the, you know, it's, it's, uh, we shouldn't call it the shadow docket, it's the emergency docket. You know, it's like, guys, like, yeah, they're not all emergencies. The and terminology is not the problem. I don't, I don't think shadow has to be perceived as pejorative. It wasn't, let me put it this way. When Will Bode coined the term in 2015, he didn't mean it as pejorative. Right. Right. Like, right. shadows are, I mean, to be perfectly precise about this, shadows are the inevitable result of casting a light source upon, you know, yeah. a, a fixed point that blocks out some part of the light. Are you, are you making a penumbra? theory case there. I, I mean, it is. There are literal. There are literal penumbras in the shadows, Bobby. Um, Sorry, I, I, I couldn't resist. No, it's awesome. Let's uh, let's pivot to Gitmo um, briefly. Yes, it's lo- still there. A couple of weeks ago, or actually, I think a little before that, but a couple of weeks ago, DoD announced that a periodic review board had approved release for Hassan Benatash, one of the two Benatash brothers at Guantanamo. Uh, the, the condition for release is, is he's got to go to a country with a strong rehabilitation or reintegration program and with enhanced monitoring, et cetera. So, of course, the catch is, as, as with a number of these cases, he's a citizen of Yemen, and, and the f- state failure in Yemen makes it hard. Uh, it certainly made it hard, going back to the Obama administration, to feel comfortable about some of these transfers. So we'll see. He had grown up. The Benatash is a Apparently, the family was residing in Saudi Arabia when he grew up initially. Um, maybe Certainly, the Saudis have those kinds of programs, so maybe he gets transferred there. I'm sure this is all bound up in the larger set of diplomatic negotiations. So who's Benatash? He, uh, the Benatash brothers were with Ramzi bin al-Sheib and others in a very famous, or at least it used to be famous, uh, counterterrorism success in, I think it was like September 2002 in Pakistan when uh, a group of very senior, Ben al-Shib being case in point, uh, very senior al-Qaeda uh, personnel were, were located and a big group were captured. So um, he's going, or at least at some point Steve will go. I think we now have, I'm not sure exactly how many people that are in this category. 21? And yeah. it's, it's kind of higher. We're approved for release, but don't have a diplomatic now, deal it yet. Be, it can't like, be 21. That's, I think, three at this point, maybe three. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. I was yeah. thinking of the broader category. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyways, this this sort of gradual winding down of Guantanamo. Where there are fewer and fewer people who are not in the military commissions right. and not cleared for transfer. Exactly. This is sort of the heart, what we think of as just like the, the baseline military detention cases. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I have not seen anything other than news of canceled hearings and so forth in the Milcom. There's actually, there's a, there's a, there's a Nashiri hearing today. No, there, there had, yeah. Was that the one that got canceled a few days ago? No, that was the Malaysia, the a Malaysia yeah. hearing got canceled. Yeah. Right. There's but Nish- still no sign of, of actual imminent trials in any of these. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Bobby. I know. Um, but one more interesting, so Carol tweeted about this yesterday. Carol was more tweeted about this yesterday. I'm not sure what to, like, so you might remember the case of Gould versus Obama, right, mm-hmm. where Judge Mehta last fall granted a Guantanamo habeas petition. We talked about how that was the first one of those in a while and yep. harkened back. So apparently the Biden administration is not appealing that decision, but apparently it also hasn't done anything to effectuate the detainee's release. Well, is it maybe most accurate to say that they are accepting the ruling and they are behind the scenes doing the diplomatic work to try to effectuate it? Maybe, but we might find out more soon because yesterday his lawyers, or two days ago, his lawyers filed um, something in with Judge Mehta asking Judge Mehta to consider finding the Biden administration is in contempt for not... Oh, that um, strikes me as ridiculous. So I, I agree that, that that actually seeking a contempt hold... that. Contempt is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Trying to create a public or at least yeah, a asking, neutral judicial right. record that the Biden administration is actively engaged in steps to secure his release. I, I think it's perfectly legitimate to take a step to try to get the court to 
be looking. Put a little bit of pressure on the, them. The idea, yeah, I think it's, it, as you said, you said it best. Um, so this came up, you know, back in the earlier years of the habeas proceedings, there were situations like this where, you know, it is in fact difficult diplomatically to put these uh, releases into motion. And the courts are not going to second guess the diplomatic efforts. They're not going to expose it all to the public. Much, much of it won't work if exposed to the public. The courts have generally accepted that. Um, that doesn't mean the courts can't put a little bit of pressure on there. It doesn't mean it's wrong for the lawyers representing the detainee to try to find vehicles to, to bring that pressure to bear. But I think it's, it's a little silly to, to think that, like, deep down, the Biden administration is hoping no, to no. flout the no, habeas no, no, process. No, 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 no. There's, and, there, the, the, right. This is, this is a, a legal gambit, right, yeah. to provoke the creation of both a record and pressure. And Yeah, you know. I, 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 I don't know what the utility actually to the, the detainee himself uh, we'll see. Of I the mean, record, we'll, we'll see. Um, the pressure makes sense. The, yeah. the yeah. Anyway, suffice to say, there is. I, I think we can say with some degree of confidence that that, that there are wheels turning um, to tr- to get at least some of the t- cleared for transfer folks and or hmm. habeas successful petitioners yeah. right out of Guantanamo. And so the number may drop from thirty seven. Like we may see a, a, a actually a bit of a flurry maybe in the next couple of months where we get down to the low 30s. Yeah, I predict that by the time you get to the end of... By our next episode. <laughs> also known as the end of, you know, the, this four-year presidency, <laughs> um, there will be, you know, roughly something very similar to whatever's going on right now, still in progress for those military commissions. Nothing really have changed. Oh, my gosh. And and then there will be transfers of those the PRBs have. They'll get those people. The yeah, people yeah clear the, the, right, that's, But there will still be some, what, some right, residual. The two, the two last, right, we're going to end up in, like, the low teens, yeah. right, with the folks who are still in the commissions and with a handful right. of um, non-commission detainees who have never been cleared by a PRB. And I'll project further into the future so that if it's a Republican administration following a, a one-term Biden presidency, then it all just gets locked down again and continues to grind away extremely slowly in the milcoms process. And if it's a second term for Biden or, or whatever else might happen, um, they won't get much further. But at some point, Steve, here's a bold prediction. Over a six-year period, surely we can't still be in pretrial proceedings in the Milcoms, or can we? Listen, I keep coming back. I keep coming back to Judge Griffith's opinion in Al Nashiri two in twenty fifteen, where he mocked mocked is, is not fair. Where he was gently critical of Al Nashiri's lawyers for for suggesting that it would be twenty twenty four before a post conviction appeal reached the D.C. Circuit in Al Nashiri's case. It is April 2022, <laughs> and that is now looking awfully optimistic. optimistic. Yeah, I was going to say, like, may, well, maybe that's what he meant. 2024, <laughs> please. 2034, more like it, right? Uh, am I right? <laughs> anyway. Um, oh, Gitmo, you have to laugh because otherwise you would just cry. Well, so uh, let's pivot over to the Justice Department National Security Division. Of, you know, we, we had Matt Olson in here a month ago, and that was, that was a great discussion. He broke, Boy, he broke our have podcast. They been, <laughs> we couldn't come back for a while. Um, they have been so busy. I, I, I'm looking through a list of some of the, the the cases that have dropped since then. A lot of Russia sanctioned stuff, but other sanctioned stuff too. But the one I want to highlight, of course, um, a really big and important win, not a surprising win, but a very important win. A, the jury convicted um, one of the so-called Islamic State Beatles. These were formerly British citizens. Uh, who were playing a key role in the captivity and horrific abuse of a number of, of Western detainees, including some American citizens. In this case, El-Shafi, El-Sheikh, 
uh, who's a who's currently about 33 years old. Uh, he was convicted, and uh, that was overdetermined, in my opinion, that that was going to happen. Uh, in in part, there were a lot of witnesses, but there were also a lot of statements by himself when he was in captivity with, uh, I think, Syrian Defense Forces had him for a while, and he would talk to reporters. Um, so that's very good. That doesn't mean it's easy to get these convictions, but this was an important one and, and a real, uh, you know, just yet another example of where when, when, at least when the evidence is there, the way to get to the uh the moment where justice is, is meted out and, and the conviction is delivered is, is pretty quick when you work through the federal courts. I mean, I don't remember how long it's been since he got brought yeah. over, but this was a battlefield scenario. And Wait, you mean the federal courts are capable of producing relatively efficient criminal convictions in, 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 in terrorism a, a cases? core Islamic State terrorist case uh, with all kinds of complexities – and in, in relatively short order, upon his arrival in the U.S., they got they got through the pretrial process, got a jury safely impaneled. The jury did its work, and now justice will be done. Um, and the contrast between this and what we were talking about earlier, it's it's just incredible. But I digress, or I repeat myself across <laughs> 200, <gonna> <laughs> 218 episodes. So we'll, we'll leave the DOJ roundup there and just say that uh, National Security Division continues to have uh, some really remarkable successes. We, um, in, my, um, in my military justice seminar uh, two weeks ago, um, we did a whole day on al-Nashiri, um, and, I, and I, I assigned them my blog post about the 10-layer dip. Um, and I, was, I was rehashing some of our, but we repeat ourselves. It, it does seem like forever ago. <laughs> Sustaining members. We, we don't have that many sustain. I mean, Gitmo is, of course, the OG sustaining member. Yeah, it really is. Um, I think beyond Guantanamo, we, we don't really have – you don't have protracted litigation like this normally, which is part of what's so stunning about the Milcoms. True. All right. I mean, uh, the, I mean the military – I mean, we have seen I, – I, this is a point I made to my, to my class. Like, we have, like, the military justice system is not set up for protracted litigation, like the rotation of trial judges, right? No, the it's, lack it's, of tenure. It's not even really set up for, like, regular – Litigation. Well, there's also you, you could do right. Course martial are not standing. Let me just digress. So, so there's nothing. <laughs> oh, I got Bobby fired up. There's nothing that. inherently wrong with the mechanism. The mechanism has been part of American jurisprudence since before there was a constitution, going back to the Revolutionary War. But the reason it's always existed, the Milcom mechanism existed. It's a, it's a battlefield expedient. It's it's a combat expedient. As necessity creates the rule, so it limits its duration. There you go. So thus spake the Supreme Court. So, ex parte Milligan. So the, the, the irregularities and the ad hocery associated okay. inevitably with these sorts of mechanisms, they make sense when, say, it's the U.S.-Mexican War and there are U.S. forces in the field and there is no local law enforcement and not everyone's subject to the court's martial jurisdiction and you need this gap-filling capability. That's all very compelling as a reason to use and have these mechanisms. Um, but it also helps explain why this, this certainly won't sustain and prove easy to implement over a multi-year, let alone a multi-decade process, right? So um, I guess it's no shock that we're in this system. Now, of course, what we've got today has a foundation in statute and sort of uh, attempts to build in a sustainable structure over time. Are, are you suggesting that the civilianization of military jurisdiction has undermined some of the justifications for military jurisdiction? Is this a topic of interest to you, Steve? Is this a book chapter I wrote? Wait, what year was this book from? I just got up to get this book off the shelf. It's very dusty. From 2013? Um, <laughs> in the Constitution that? and the Future of Criminal Justice in America? Ah. 
Interesting. John, pa- who were the editors? John, John Perry, Perry and Song Richardson. Oh. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> you agree. See chapter 13. See Stephen I. Vlodov, The Civilization of Military Jurisdiction in... <laughs> chapter 6. Um, no, but seriously, I mean, I, this is like, I actually, th- so I think that is such a deep and interesting and important point. And I think it actually cuts beyond the military commissions, right? Like, courts martial were courts of necessity at the founding in ways that they have been deeply civilianized today. I, I, I agree with that characterization. I do think that there's a rationale for yes. the existence of the separate Agreed. system, Agreed. all entirely bound up in, the, in what we were talking about earlier, yes. the separate legal domain of being in military service, Correct. which is so different from civilian life. Wh- but but is- Milcom's, the rationale is very strong in the deployment setting. Yes. And, and very weak we're, when and we're not, it. and we've never been using it in that way through this whole period, and right. we're seeing all the the cost of it. And then you look at something like the Beatles case, and yep. you think, my God, that was quick right. and effective. Imagine if we'd done that. Why can't 11. we just do that? So, can I just say, I agree with the only point I want to make to tie a couple of threads together is for me, this is why like the retiree cases in the courts martial matter because yeah. the the rat the justifications for the don't separate, carry over to retirees. Boom. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I think that's right. Well, we'll see. We'll see if two of the three judges on my DC Circuit panel agree with that. They they've been taking their time. Well, maybe it's a sign they're taking it seriously. Listen, I, I I'm fairly confident it's two to one. I just don't know which way. Which way? <laughs> which one you're on? I have my guess. Um, but let's talk yes, frivolity. I, I have my guess too, and it's probably the same. And it's probably not good for me. All right. If you're not down with the sports ball and other frivolity, thanks for listening up till now. But Steve, let's come. See let's come June. back to the Mets. Can we talk about that? I mean, How about I, that, Chris Bassett? Have you heard? Have, have, you, have you heard about the Mets? The first place Mets? The best record in the majors, Mets? My God, enjoy it while it lasts. <laughs> I think it might last a little bit because okay, what, when's Degrom coming back? Is Degrom coming back? So now they're saying June. Like, my hope is the all-star break. Yeah, right. take their time. Like, like, my hope is that he's fully rested and healed up and ready to go after the all-star break. I mean, think about what a boost to rotation it is oh. to come in after the all-star break and have DeGrom fresh. No, like, talk about a mid-season acquisition. Right. So, so I, I, like, especially as long as, long as like, I mean, I, I do think that the most surprising thing about the Mets to this point has been the strength of the rotation without DeGrom, right? I mean, we knew Scherzer would be great. Um, you know, Tyler McGill, I think, was always going to have a, an even better year this year, although I'm surprised by just how much his fastball velocity has increased. Um, I've been really, really, really pleasantly surprised by, you know, Chris Bassett. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yep. And, and, and also Carlos Carrasco seems to have reverted to some of his prime form from Cleveland. Let's get some stats on the on He's, the pitching, he's pitching today, by the way. The Mets play it in, in about an hour. All right, so Scherzer, not surprisingly, uh, that's just how, killing that it. A horse. He is... <laughs> It's really, he's really fun. To I mean watch, that in the dude. most. I mean that in the most complimentary way. Yeah, but you you look at like you look at the whips for the starters, and everybody is one one or below. Yes, that's amazing. Yep. And I realize this this will probably loosen up over time, but that's that's when you know, it's not sustainable. But it's a big part of why yeah. we are fourteen yeah, and five um, um, through nineteen games. Uh, okay. So what about so Francisco Lindor? No longer. Sucking the way he sucked <laughs> last year, um, not killing it either, but beginning to trend back towards form. It, pretty good, yes. Pretty solid, yes. Um, relative to the pay, oh. I know. But the, I mean, listen. The reality is, so many Mets had like career low, like you know, so many Mets underperformed their ordinary, even their median performances last year. That just a reversion to the mean was going to be helpful. Yeah, and then and then kind of flipping that around. So I think if somebody who who was. Uh, 
kind of in danger of reverting to the mean the other direction who had a good year last year. Brandon Nimmo, I yeah. think a lot of people are like, ah, that was kind of fluky. Yeah. I don't know. He, he's still getting on base like crazy. But, he's but there's one, pretty but, well. but Buck Showalter has to cut bait with Robinson Cano. Like, Cano has yeah. got to, he's no, taking no. at bats away from Dom Smith right no, now, no, and that has to stop. That's that's exactly right. So, I think it's exactly that, right. So my one, dear Buck Showalter, if you're listening to this podcast, first of all, why? Yep. But second, please let, you know, Dom DH instead of Robinson Cano. Thank you. And we, I mean, it's not like we don't have a second. Like, put McNeil at second. Right. No, you can do that, and that would be a much better lineup, I the, think. The irony is the National League DH, which I hate, has actually given the Mets a whole lot of additional flexibility They've in their lineup. it a little bit more. I mean, the right. lineup is so long. Jeff McNeil's hitting eighth. Yeah, it's a little bit bonkers. So, so what in about, case you couldn't tell, I'm pretty happy about the Mets being good. Broader MLB observations early in the season. Offense is down. Um, right, the the I think the, what the league batting average is the lowest it's which been is since nineteen sixty eight, which is which which is really counterintuitive with the National League DH. Yeah. Um, um, there's a lot but of is, is, that, is part of that like like there's so much bitching about the uh, the ball being juiced last year that. But now everyone's complaining that like there are two different balls, right? Like the so so uh, you know there was a whole thing in the in the paper this morning about like pitchers saying like some balls are dead and some balls are juice and you just can't tell which one is which. <laughs> hey, it spices things up. You never know what you're gonna get. But also, I mean, the Mets, you know, the Mets have been hit 18 times in 19 games, right? Some of that's been blamed <laughs> on like the lack of grip, right, on the balls, you know, because now every stadium is using humidors. Interesting. So, so something weird. <laughs> and so, it's so, so Buck is like, well, don't do it because we're getting on base with this. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Something weird is happening with the baseball. Um, not clear to me yet what, but like it's odd to me that offense is, it's not offense. It's odd to me that is any of this a, sh- uh, a lockout hangover? So it could be a lockout hangover. It could be like a, a sort of accelerated spring training for some guys, right? That like they sort of came to camp more out of shape maybe than usual. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always you never want to generalize based on what happens in April because there are various seasonal, you know, you really want to hold the season's worth of data or at least a half a season's worth of data. Yeah, it's way too soon. But you know, I'll, but listen, if we just stop counting today, the Mets would be you know home field <laughs> throughout the National League playoffs. So I will, I'll take it. Um, what about NBA? Are you following the playoffs? Marginally, I, I'm very happy to see Brooklyn ceremoniously or unceremoniously dumped out of the playoffs. I, I feel the same way. Why do we feel that way? What is it about that? Is it just sort of the? I always feel there's something tawdry about the just the buy the big stars, yes. bring in the big stars, form your super team, and then voila. So I love the Warriors, and so I feel like Kevin Durant a little bit betrayed the Warriors, right? And so there's a little bit of that, and I cannot for the life of me stand Kyrie. Yeah, not a not a fan. So. I mean, I love James Harden. Like, I mean, like, well, the Harden's down in Philadelphia. Well, but like, well, right. I, so I actually am, am not a huge Harden fan because I, I like you don't a love lot the beard. Of, I love the beard itself. <laughs> um, but my observation of when he was a Rocket and where he's been elsewhere is his lack of interest in playing defense, which is you know he's notorious for this. Yep. This is like what everyone says about him, yep. but for good reason. Yep. Um, and and I just think it really hurts his teams relative to what he's bringing to the table. Although the Sixers, I mean, you know, the the the, the advanced metrics, as they would say, um, for the Sixers are actually pretty decent. Anyway, um, we'll see. If, I mean, the Sixers might be on the verge of blowing a three nothing lead in their series. Yeah, I kind of I gotta say as. I, I don't really care about the, nope. the Raptors one way or the other, but I like the idea of the Raptors actually coming back and taking this. So, I mean, the, I mean if the Sixers and the Nets both get bounced out of the first round, that's, like, that's pretty fun. That's going to be pretty awkward. That's pretty fun. Uh, I also love it that even though I actually like Phoenix and I especially like Chris Paul, yeah. Wake Forest, um, I think it's really cool that the Pelicans are really giving them a run for them. The, I mean, so I, I actually think the most impressive team in the playoffs thus far has been the Pelicans. 
That's great. I mean, that's just like that's a team playing with a lot of heart. Yes. Um, and you feel like it's sort of it's like you know they may not win the series, but like they're gonna you know they're gonna take a lot of positive vibes out of it. Uh, Wolves and Grizzlies also a super cool series of yeah. just sort of like not marquee teams right. that are actually 1990s playing. expansion teams. And, and, and also like you got to look John Morant. I mean, yes. it's he's so good, so good. Um, I love it that the Mavericks have withstood. I mean, I felt so bad for them when Luca got hurt indeed. and just thought, oh, that that's just. That's All right, brutal. so who's your, who's your current what, what what's your current prediction for the NBA Finals? Hmm. Bucks Warriors. Bucks Warriors. Interesting. Yeah, Bucks Warriors. You heard it here first. All right. I'm going Celtics Warriors. They are hot. I think as I think, could I, think be. I think like getting to steamroll the Nets is going to give the Celtics a lot yeah. of momentum. Yeah. And I think the Bucks are are more vulnerable this year than they were last year. I, I think that's right. I could I could easily see it going. But that yes, way. the Warriors. I don't. I mean, I, Phoenix looks so. I mean, especially with the injury to Devin Booker, like Phoenix looks so beautiful. They're mortal. They're mortal. Yes. Yeah. And I, you know, the Dallas actually could be a bit of a wild card. Yes. Some of the you know, there's a certain possibility of momentum in having survived the the Lucaless period as long <laughs> as he's fully back. Can and, you guys tell that we haven't like talked about sports in a month? I know. All right, what have you been reading? Anything uh, non-work-related that's been a good read? Non-work-related eliminates a lot. Yeah. Um, I was one plug. I'm really excited. I got. I don't know how I got so lucky, but I got like a super advanced pre-publication copy of our friend Brad Snyder's new biography of Justice Frankfurter. Ooh, um, that will which be is fun. coming out from Norton in August. Um, but I got mine. Um, oh, I submitted the book. Hey, congratulations. The book, the, the manuscript, did. the manuscript is in all 92,000 words of it. So I'm and, and I have a publication and I have a publication date. you met your deadline. Well, that's what happens with the trade press, right? Like, you you got to meet the you deadline. Should, you, you should be actually really annoyed at me for meeting my deadline because in meeting that deadline, I have totally blown uh, a deadline of yours. Um, that's all right. Now, but, now I know you're free and I can indeed. start pressuring you again. But I have a publication date of June 6th, 2023. That's fantastic. So, here, here's the deal. People got to pre-order this once it's available for pre-order. Oh, don't worry. I will be hawking the book like you've never heard anyone hawk a it's book. It's a shame before. you don't have any social media followers you can hawk it to. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. I, so I don't know if you know. I lost. I, I lost something like 1,100 followers yesterday, and what, I don't know if for that what? was so. I don't know if that some was some kind a, of house cleaning, a random that, purge, or if that is like an Elon Musk, you know, exodus. Oh, oh like people just like leaving Twitter. Yeah. Well, that's dumb. Um, I can imagine that there's just tweaks to the algorithm yeah, about yeah, detecting, you know, bot accounts. I mean, like, it, it was just funny because I, I, you know, I don't actually pay that close attention, so I don't usually notice like small. That's a rounding error for your size of. A <laughs> it was. Follower. It was. It was more. I remember it, when we had comparable followers. Now it's like, wait a minute, I'm like an order of magnet. I'm I'm a decimal place and a half. See what happens when you abandon all pretense of being a rational, neutral arbiter <laughs> of anything. I will. I'll be the first to admit that my account's pretty boring. <laughs> um, I was on the uh, advisory opinions podcast this week with. Um, David French and Sarah Isger. Um, oh, really? It's it a slightly different vibe. Well, send me the link for that. I'd like okay. to listen to that. Um, um, I, I was on the <laughs> Forcepoint, uh, Raytheon's cybersecurity company, Forcepoint. Has a, has this is a, more up your alley. That I, I did an interview with them a couple of weeks ago, and it dropped yesterday, so I need to circulate that. But it's not nearly as cool as talking to the folks. But so, so, the, so, this, so what I was going to say, so the only problem with the Mets being good is that it has sucked up all of my TV watching time. Right, right. So right. I am now behind on, except for winning time, I am behind on everything. I'm behind on Picard. I'm behind on the new HBO Baltimore thingy. Um, right, I'm behind. If there's a good show on TV right now, I'm behind. So I've been catching up on a series that I never saw in real time, but it's really fun to watch now. I can't <laughs> believe how hilarious it is. Have you ever watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine? 
No, but I've, I I, right. I know people who are big I, fans. People always talked about it. I always liked Andy Samberg. And uh, so my oldest daughter was watching it, and I started watching it with her. It is pure genius. It is so good. Run That's what I hear. to watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, some long-time <laughs> listeners will recall that sometime back I threatened to reread the Wheel of Time yes, series, Robert indeed. Jordan series. So I, I'm getting close to completing it. It was. It has been such a slog. But, you know, the whole deal is that, you know, so Jordan passed away before he could right. complete it. Right. And, and so this this sort of this, uh, it, it's irony because one of the themes of Wheel of Time is, you know, the, the, the circular nature of time, the repeating of events. And, of course, we look at George R. R. Martin in Game of Thrones and you wonder, like, I, we're really not ever going to see any more books from this guy, are we? It's all just talk. Maybe, maybe, maybe we get the, the penultimate book, but never the last one. But with Robert Jordan, what happens is after he passes, uh, his wife and the estate and the publishers, they go to Brandon Sanderson and ask him to take over the writing of it and using notes and interviews and so forth. He's got the plot as near as we can tell. Um, and it really, really, the, the, I think the final three books in the sequence are from him. Mm-hmm. Much better. Good. Like it really picks up and Good. improves. Good. Um, you know what? Actually, I did read a book that was not directly work related. You might you might not accept this 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 proposal. Mm. Um, I, so Garrett Graff has a new history of Watergate. Oh, but that's quite good. It's really good. It's re- like and and I I who thought but, I knew what, a lot about it, Watergate. Yeah, I was gonna say, did it does it bring new elements into the story? So there there's some new information, right? He has access to some papers yeah. and some interviews. I mean, certainly if all if your only exposure is the all the president's men version, yeah, right, a lot to learn. There's here. a lot to learn. Um, if you've carefully followed things, there are probably only a few things you're going to learn. But he tells the story in this perfectly chronological way. No, I appreciate it. Get- Garrett's a great storyteller yes. and a great writer, yes. and so I, if if you're right, his oral history area, of the night we, of the Bin Laden raid, right, is a yeah, good example. No, he's, of that. He's really uh, so like, so I'm, so. I'm I would say like, and, and and it's such a like you know I already knew a lot of this history. It's it's striking to me that so many of our current students oh no have no idea. I, I can't even imagine. Right. There's there's a, whole, there's a whole slew of things that people Gen Xers in in close like, the, like I say cousins. Saturday Night Massacre, and they say. Saturday huh? Live? What? Right. <laughs> yes. right. Who died on Saturday Night Live? Like everybody. Um, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> they've been they've been modest. They've been off and on funny. Off and on. But that's it's always been so. We just we I think just, back to earlier. I years, respectfully disagree. There was a period always, of time. There's always a, several clunker skits every time. They're never all good. I don't know. I feel like there was a period of time in the early '90s where it was reliably excellent every week. When it was like Dana Carvey, David Spade, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler, Kevin Nealon, you know, I'm forget Mike Myers, right? I mean, like when it was, you know, that universe of people. So we should we should pick a random old episode. We and should, go we should do some yeah. sampling and decide, like, all right, was all that right. like? Oh, that was terrible. Three good skits and five. <laughs> gee, why is it that the bad skits, which are objectively, you can tell they're not yeah, that funny. Right. Why are those the longest skits, yeah. or is that just? the uh, relativity of time yep. yeah, yeah it's like studio 60 on the sunset strip which i i, I still <laughs> think is a better show than people thought but i'm, I'm an outlier on this awesome all right. all right um what do you think less than a month next time for sure <laughs> yeah because because classes are almost over yeah and that's not like we have anything else to do <laughs> exams mm. all right he is at bobby sends i'm at steve underscore vladic we are at nsl podcast we will try to be back in fewer than 30 days um <laughs> no promises <laughs> stay safe out there let's go mets adios